2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, how life survives, adapts and evolves, with Michael J. Benton, and his new book, Extinctions. Michael J. Benton is professor of vertebrate paleontology and head of the world-leading paleontology research group at the University of Bristol. He has written more than fifty books, including Dinosaurs: New Visions of a Lost World, The Dinosaurs Rediscovered, and When Life Nearly Died, all published by Thames and Hudson. He was awarded an OBE in 2021 for services to paleontology and community engagement, and he regularly appears in the media to discuss dinosaurs and the history of life. And today we're here to talk about Mike's latest book, which is Extinctions, How Life Survives, Adapts and Evolves. Mike, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Thank you very much. My pleasure.
2: First of all, then, I guess, tell us what the idea is behind this book.
3: I think the idea is to try and connect um, from the present day to the past. I think I try to use the dodo as a connecting image or icon um, where we think of the dodo, of course, historically because it died out. Two or 300 years ago. And therefore, in some way, it stands there side by side with dinosaurs and other strange creatures of the past. But of course, this happened within human history. And we we know a lot of detail from what people were writing. And that then allows us to phase back through the Great Ice Age, the extinctions 10,000 years ago, when mammoths and and woolly rhinos disappeared, all the way back to the dinosaurs, and much earlier, pretty much back to early stages in the history of life. So what I wanted to do was to show people the exciting information, the the big changes in our understanding on the paleontology side, that is the side of the deep history of the earth and of life on earth. What do we know about these big events millions of years ago? How do they connect through these kind of semi-historical, you know, prehistoric people, historical events right through to the present day? So I don't have a great deal. Well, no, I have certain things to say that are relevant to the present day. And of course, it has uh, that merit that people care about these things. There are, of course, plenty of books talking about the present biodiversity crisis. So I touch on that, but I try to illuminate that in ways that people might find unexpected.
2: And the book is punctuated by... Major mass extinction events. So, tell us how we define a mass extinction as opposed to the general background extinctions.
3: Yes, I think it's an important point because um, I think everybody knows that species don't last forever. In fact, species may last for only a few hundred thousand years, maybe two or three million at most. And that means, therefore, over a long span of time, species will disappear. They don't last forever. And at the other end of the spectrum, but those are just single species disappearing for this reason or that reason. For example, the woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos died out in Europe and Asia and North America at the end of the Ice Age because of major climate change. It got warmer. They were adapted to the cold. They had nowhere to go. They died out. But in in effect, that was just five or six species, not an enormous thing. A mass extinction is, is something we have not experienced but many people argue, and I think I, I would agree um, within the, the definitions, that we are going through a mass extinction at the moment. And there are such events in the deep past. So if we want to understand what's happening now or what may happen in 100 years or 1,000 years, we can look at these experiments that have happened. So uh, mass extinction would be defined as a time when many, many species die out, typically a half of all species or even more. But particularly the important points are it's all over the world, not just in certain regions, and it's all kinds of plants and animals. It's not just one group, like, for example, the woolly mammals at the end of the Ice Age, because although that was pretty grim for them, uh, lots of other plants and animals sailed through that uh, end of the Ice Age perfectly well. So the mass extinction that everybody has heard about at the end of the Cretaceous, dinosaurs died out. That was pretty amazing. If you've been around at the time, one minute, the dinosaurs are there. Next, they're gone, just a pile of carcasses. But it wasn't just the dinosaurs. If it had just been the dinosaurs, that would not be classified as a mass extinction. But also in the oceans, the ammonites and belemnites and various fish groups and the marine reptiles like plesiosaurs disappeared and various plant groups. And so, in other words, it was quite a wide sweeping event and happened worldwide. Therefore, that's why we call it a mass extinction.
2: And you hinted at this a little in that answer, but, and it seems like a really counterintuitive thing to say, but is it always a bad thing that there is extinction?
3: That's one of the themes of the book, is to remind ourselves that actually. Mass extinction sometimes cleared the decks. Now, that's a funny way of looking at it, because, of course, we're looking backwards in time, whereas, of course, evolution moves forwards in time. And, of course, none of these events is predictable. Nobody would have known, oh, this thing is happening, therefore we should do this or that to defend ourselves. Looking back, we can see that, as is well known, the disappearance of the dinosaurs was good for mammals. And it's well accepted, I think, it's pretty well demonstrated that the mammals, which were already around, they were on the earth with the dinosaurs, but because of the dinosaurs, they were somehow constrained or held down. When the dinosaurs disappear, they kind of explode all over the place and take over many of the ecological roles that the dinosaurs had had. It was also good for flowering plants and for various groups of birds and insects and lizards, and lots of other creatures took off. And so we can um, look back at the extinction events as punctuating steps along the way to the development of the modern type of ecosystem that we're used to. And so there's that sort of positivity, I suppose, for the survivors. Um, but it's, and it's something we can think about. But we have to be careful if we take that as a purely optimistic message for the present day we do need to think about timescales.
2: It was always supposed that before the um, the Cambrian epoch, the pre-Cambrian times, that there wasn't complex animals. And then relatively recently, somebody found some. So tell us at yeah. the beginning of the book, you talk about something called the Edicarian animals. So yes. what are they? What were they like? And who found them?
3: so this this was the the beginning and and this is part of recent research or, or effectively the last fifty or sixty years um when Charles Darwin wrote about the knowledge of the fossil record in eighteen fifty nine he and he was a great paleontologist as well as everything else. he knew what was going on. The time before the Cambrian was called the precambrian great imagination we have. And that was an enormous span of time because the Cambrian begins about 530 million years ago. And yet, before that, the Earth originated something like four, five, six, seven million years ago, so 4,000 million years ago. And so, four fifths of the history of the Earth is encompassed in the Precambrian. And to Darwin and others, and really up until the 1950s, It was just a time of nothing. People kind of knew very little about fossils from that time. People had reported odds and ends, but because they were highly simple, you'd expect them to be simple anyway, because these are sort of precursors of bacteria and algae and rather simple organisms. Ironically, of course, that makes them controversial, because a simple fossil to one person is a bit of rubbish to another person. Um and so it 's not a, it's not like a skeleton of a of a fish or 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 a dinosaur where nobody argues yes, yes, you 've got a fish, you 've got a dinosaur when you 've got these precambrian creatures, a lot of people argue so the Ediacarons were found uh, in the nineteen forties and fifties, and at first people didn 't believe them they thought oh you 've got the age rock, you know these things can 't be Precambrian because sort of by definition you don't find stuff in the precambrian and they did and so the story of the last sixty or seventy years has been massive increase in knowledge of what was going on, not just the the organisms, but also um, the environments and and the development of oxygen in the atmosphere and all kinds of other amazing stuff. And so there were these Ediacaran things living maybe 600 million years ago, well before the beginning of the Cambrian. And uh, they were weird. And there's been a lot of debate about what are they? So let me describe what one of them looks like, Charnia. It was named first from Charnwood Forest uh, near Leicester, and it was indeed one of the first of the Ediacarans to be named. It's a strange thing that looks superficially like a fern, but then when it's reconstructed, when the fossils are properly scanned and imaged, you realize it's it's more like a blow up fern. In other words, it's not flat with branching, narrow structures, it's sort of filled with fluid. If you could imagine a sort of child's fern made out of plastic and As I say, you blow it up and there it is wobbling about underwater, full of liquid, not full of air when it was living. But it branches in a kind of regular way. And people have studied the branching to try and understand how they grow because there are baby ones and adult ones. And it's a single frond. It's maybe the size of your hand attached to the ocean floor by a stalk, just like your wrist. And there it is, sits on the floor of the ocean, waving around in the current. But this rather duvet-like structure, that's what they are. They're, like, they're sort of like stuffed duvets. At one minute you think, oh, is it some sort of fern? Well, no, it's not. It's an animal of some sort. Well, is it related to some sort of modern sea pen or one of these obscure little things that lives on the bottom of the ocean? And it's even been suggested, and I think most people accept, that a lot of them were just a unique flourishing of weird little animals that were somehow constructed on a sort of blow-up pneumatic type of structure, like an old-fashioned pump-up rubber air mattress. And some of them were also disc-shaped, and some of them were more sausage-shaped, and they almost look as if they've got limbs, but they don't really have limbs. Some were fixed. Some could somehow creep about. Others may be rolled about. It's not very clear. And then they did disappear. So somewhere at the end of the Precambrian, there was the first mass extinction that we can document. And yet it's it's a bit intangible. You know, you try to get your hands on it. And it's difficult because the rocks are so ancient, it's very difficult to date them. And the fossils, these Ediacarans, which are found in England, they're also found in Australia, that's where the Ediacara Mountains are, they're found in Russia, they're found in Canada, all over the world. They were clearly important, but we just get sporadic glimpses. And where you glimpse them, they're, they're fantastic, and then there's nothing. So they disappeared, but we've got no idea why. We don't even know what they were, how they lived. You know, They're almost like something otherworldly.
2: You talked then about the um the Cambrian explosion, which ironically for a um a book about mass extinctions is not an actual explosion, but a great flourishing of uh, various different species, made famous by the um the Burgess Shale site, which has, you know, loads and loads and loads of fossils were found. In contrast to the Edicarian animals that you've been talking about, there was this site where there was lots, but in general, like I want to talk about the opposite. Why is it that Fossils are actually really difficult to find. Why is there not just fossils everywhere?
3: Yes, that's a great question. And the Cambrian explosion is just that is one of the biggest events along the way to the modern world. Yes, why don't we find fossils everywhere? Well, first of all, you've got to find them in sedimentary rocks. So if you're wandering about on marble or slate or even worse, granite or volcanic rocks or whatever you're not likely to find very much um, because those rocks have been through a process of heating and melting or pressure. And so nothing can be preserved. But even within sedimentary rocks like limestones and sandstone, if they're deposited in certain conditions like sandstones in a desert, you're probably not going to find much in them. If you think of even the modern um, Sahara Desert, you wander about. And uh, there's massive volumes of sand, of course, moving around all the time. Not much life. If you look closely, of course, it's great. You know, you see insects wandering about at night and so All that could eventually turn into rock and there wouldn't be much in it. And even if there were creatures preserved, they're probably going to be oxidized away very quickly. Because unless there's some uh, hard tissues like like a shell or a skeleton, and unless the uh, conditions of um, deposition are correct... maybe not much going to survive. But then we get very excited about localities like the Burgess Shale in Canada, or the equivalent, the Chengjiang uh, uh, faunas in China, because there we not only find fossils, we find lots of fossils. So both localities are producing millions of fossils and sometimes on multiple levels. So it's not necessarily you're sampling just from one level. You're actually sampling through a span of time. And not only are there millions of fossils and, and very diverse, you know, representing hundreds of species. In both those cases, they're uh, exceptionally preserved, as are the Ediacarans. They have no skeleton as such. And likewise, the uh, many of the creatures in Burgess and Chengjiang do have skeletons. There are some early vertebrates that had a kind of rubbery skeleton There are lots of arthropods, you know, distant ancestors of trilobites and crabs and insects. And they have an external, crunchy sort of skeleton, just like they do today, made out of calcite. So they're preserved, but also you get all the legs and the guts and the eyes and the nerves. And so, wow, no wonder we get excited and particularly the Chengjiang because that's older than the Burgess Shale and it really is in the midst of the cambrian explosion so the cambrian explosion began more or less at the beginning of the cambrian 530 or so million years ago after the extinction of the ediacaran so minimally there was some sort of release but i think life in the cambrian got so much more diverse than it had been before and it's really important because people track all the modern groups of animals back to that time so if you were interested in the origins of anything, you know, from sponges, corals, worms, arthropods, and vertebrates, our own group, they all track back to this amazing time of diversification when lots of these groups got skeletons of one sort or another. We got our internal skeleton, which is made of calcium phosphate. Lots of other groups like brachiopods and mollusks and uh, arthropods got skeletons made of calcite, that's calcium carbonate. In both cases, the minerals are extracted from the water and the animal builds the skeleton. And thank goodness, they are the things that are preserved. But people get exceptionally excited about these Cambrian sites because in addition, as I mentioned, the soft tissues are there. And if you're interested in the evolution of function, how bodies work, the the bilateral symmetry of lots of bodies, the way the nervous system works, the brain, the senses, how did these creatures see the world? We can even do experiments. You've got eyes. You can look inside those eyes of these 500 million year old creatures and see the rods and cones and the structures within the eye and reconstruct how they saw. And you can compare that with genomic analysis based on living uh, relatives, which can tell you which genes uh, generate the code for different aspects of vision or different aspects of feeding or locomotion. And so now all of these disciplines are being woven together with the paleontology to give us a very rich picture of um, the origination of different animal groups at that time.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too.
2: you're listening to little atoms i'm talking to michael j benton we're talking about his new book, Extinctions, How Life Survives, Adapts, and Evolves. And Mike, we'll throw ourselves in the second half into the um, at least some of the uh, the mass extinctions.
3: Yes, I'll happened. try and be a little bit the quicker. Big five, five mass, mass extinctions. extinctions. it would be nice to talk a little bit about each one, yeah. Um, We've on the Ordovician, but I'll try, yeah.
2: Indeed, yeah. So the, um, the Ordovician biodiversity event is another massive flowering of life that happens um but this also then eventually leads to the the first of the great mass extinctions so tell us what this biodiversity event was and then yes why there was a mass extinction
3: yes so through the cambrian the all these amazing things were happening there were various extinctions around the end of the cambrian which are normally not counted as as mass extinction but who knows you know we have to look again and then the following span of time the ordovician and um, there was a great continuing expansion of all these marine animal groups that I was mentioning. So new groups of arthropods and vertebrates, and, including early fishes, um, and all the others. And that went on very successfully with massive expansion, and the oceans were clearly a friendly place for life. There was lots of shallow, oxygen-rich ocean uh, with warm climates, and so all of these groups flourished. And then towards the end of the Ordovician, it seems there were were one or more freezing events where ice caps were developing, particularly at the South Pole, where actually quite a lot of the land masses and the surrounding continental shelves were clustered at that time. And so the ice caps expanded. They removed water from the oceans, and that because, of course, the ice cap is built from ocean water. So sea levels fall, meaning the sea retreats. And Most of marine life, we have to remember, lives on the continental shelf, which is just that narrow fringe of relatively shallow water that is penetrated by sunlight, meaning that that organisms can benefit from the sunlight and, and the reasonable amounts of oxygen as well, unlike in the very deep oceans, the dark, deep oceans, which don't really accommodate a great deal of life. So with seas retreating and then also that exposed a lot of the um, former ocean floor and there there was geochemical mayhem at that time with all kinds of chemicals being washed into the ocean and mixing and creating poorly oxygenated conditions. So it seems there was some kind of combination of ice age with chemical poisoning of the ocean, which actually then did cause dramatic extinction at the end of the Ordovician. It's not such a well-known one. It is classified as the first of the big five. We talk about the big five mass extinctions, even though there were these earlier events, but they, they somehow are not that well-known. This one has been very thoroughly studied, and there is no doubt. It was a big catastrophe. Maybe 30 40 50% of species disappeared. And as we move into the Silurian and Devonian, which are the next two geological periods, we do get a massive uh, change in the nature of life.
2: Well, you mentioned earlier on during the the Cambrian Explosion is the period of time when basically all types of life that we would know now emerged. But at this point that we're at now, the Silurian and the Devonian, this is all in the sea. We haven't actually come out onto land yet. And this is the period of time when that happens. But the end Devonian period also sees another mass extinction. And this is one where I guess we can take lessons from now because it's, um, it's a global warming event.
3: Yes, so absolutely. So it's, it's, it's very bad in a way to be scampering so fast through all of this, this uh, excitement of the major steps along the way. But you're quite right. Time is limited. And during the Silurian and uh, Devonian, a lot of the story moves to land. You're absolutely right. There is evidence of simple algae and other organisms perhaps creeping onto land, living around the edges of the water, greening the land, as people say, because many of the algae, including modern seaweeds, of course, they photosynthesize. So there was something on land, there was oxygen in the atmosphere, but most of the Earth's surface at this point was just bare rock. And it's quite difficult for us to envisage that, but all the evidence suggests that's true. And that because it's bare rock, rates of erosion were maybe 10 or more times what they are today. In other words, that any rainfall would just batter the rocks and huge amounts of debris would be washed into the ocean. And the big change that happened as life moved on to land was that you get the first formation of soil, because soil is an organic substance. It's made of ground up rocks with all their mineral content plus organic matter, mainly from plants. And through the late Ordovician, but particularly in the Silurian and Devonian, plants moved onto land, initially just very simple things like mosses, but enough that they began building up a soil. And if you've observed the way soils develop on rocks today, I look at it on my car because I'm, I'm not a very proud car owner and Moss grows along the edges of the windows, and then eventually it builds up a bit of soil to the point at which a little bit of grass may be rooting in the edge of the window of my car. And this is the sort of thing that went on And um, then. There weren't grasses, but there were other plants like ferns and such like that came next. And so the plants, the story is the plants were getting bigger. They're moving further from the water side. They're still within a kilometer or a few hundred meters of the water side. They're still not going very far. Through the Devonian, you get the first trees. So we're beginning to green the landscape stepwise. And at the same time, of course, this opportunity of plants on land very quickly was followed by all kinds of arthropods, things like millipedes and insects began creeping onto land. The fossils are beautifully preserved. Mainly the the initial ones were quite small. They were often living secretive lives, hiding away inside the plants, you know, feeding in the stems and this and that. But there were predatory ones as well. They were hunting the other, you know, already you're getting the beginnings of ecosystems. And then very famously through the Devonian, vertebrates did it. The transition from fish with their fins to tetrapods with their legs. And so we are tetrapods, frogs are tetrapods, lizards, birds, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. All of those non-fish vertebrates, we just call tetrapods, meaning four legs, and that happened in the Devonian. There's wonderful fossils tell us a story of how fishes were wandering about, grabbing a little bit of foothold on land, pulling along laboriously with their fins and collapsing in a heap. This was a time of rather warm climates. There were no, were no ice caps and there were probably monsoonal climates and they had to drag themselves from pond to pond. So that's the general story. And these, these are the first amphibians. And yet in the late Devonian, um, we're now talking something like 300 million years ago, there were two events um, separated by quite a span of time that really had a big effect. They killed off a lot of the early fish groups that had already been dominating the oceans, many of which were armored and beautifully known from fossils. They kind of disappeared a lot of these transitional fish tetrapod creatures disappeared. And the more modern fishes that we're familiar with today, the bony fishes and, and the cartilaginous fishes, early sharky things, they appeared after the event. So and as you said, my final point will be that these late Devonian events, they seem to show us the first of the what, what are called hyperthermal events, where there's evidence for volcanic activity, massively changing the atmosphere, leading to warming and various consequences that kill life. And I can develop that a little bit further, maybe when we look at some of the later events.
2: Well, the next one, the Permian, which dwarfs all of the rest of the Mass extinctions, indeed, you, you wrote a, a whole book about this one called When Life Nearly Died, which tells you what you need to know about the um, Permian mass extinction. So tell us how much extinction there was, how much life died, and how does this one open the door for the dinosaurs?
3: Yes. So this is the biggest, and it's less well-known than the, the one where the dinosaurs died out. But at the end of the Permian, 252 million years ago, it's long been known there was something really big going on. There's a massive change in the nature of life on land and in the oceans. Um, And this is the beginning of modern types of organisms. So for those who know their fossils, things like trilobites and lots of the brachiopods and lots of crinoids, the sea lilies, and numerous other and, and various um, heavily scaled fishes and others disappear and different sort of somewhat lumbering, sprawling reptiles on land also disappear. And this opens the way for recovery of life and many, much of which is of the modern type. But what's been exciting is two things, I guess. Number one is the scale of it. That's been much Measured and debated. And when people many years ago suggested that this was killing off more than 90% of species, this is worth just pausing a moment. More than 90%, maybe 95%, that means that only one in 20 of species actually survive. And that is by far the biggest of all the events. You know, it, it's kind of 10 times more serious than any of the others. And only 5% survival is so small. It's close to life disappearing completely. So that's been a big debate issue. But where people have had good data, it's confirmed itself time and again. And in this case, particularly new studies in China have really changed our view, because in South China in particular, there are wonderful, wonderful marine sections and in North China, terrestrial sections, which we didn't know about until, you know, until recent decades. And now there's an enormous amount of work going on. That's one thing. And the other thing is, what on earth caused it? And again, like the late Devonian events, it seems to have been, well, I think it's pretty much definitely accepted. It was all down to the volcanic eruption. But that's not the key point. It's much more to do with the hyperthermal aspect. And what does that mean? High temperature. It's the products of the volcano, not the lava. The lava, of course, will affect life near to the, the volcano, but not worldwide. But the modification to the atmosphere is the key. And volcanoes today, all volcanoes, any kind of volcano, pours out a variety of greenhouse gases. It pours out carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor. And these, as many people know, can have a big influence on the atmosphere. They can lead to global warming. And that's where the hyperthermal comes in. That's what it means. It means high temperature. The second point is that the volcanoes not only generate these greenhouse gases, um, but they also generate acid rain, because a lot of those gases and some other ones mixing with rainwater produce acid, essentially, and particularly sulfuric acid. And this is what modern volcanoes do. But of course, we know also modern coal-burning factories do the same. They're burning sulfurous coal, and the sulfur and other components go into the atmosphere, mix with water, form acid and we know very well what acid rain does. And I think the key to the hyperthermal is that it happens on all different scales. So depending on the size of the producer, in this case a volcano, but it could equally be a factory, but in this case a volcano, these are global scale effects. So these are giant volcanoes on a scale we have not witnessed. So some listeners will remember Mount St. Helens and we'll know of historic eruptions like Krakatoa and Laki in Iceland and others of the kind which had global effects so the size of the volcanic eruption determines the amount of gas and that determines the amount of impact on the atmosphere and how widespread at the end of the permian the eruptions were in eastern russia they're known as the siberian traps the the name traps is just a general landscape term for the sort of layered landscape you get from these layers of um, lava that were poured out, and it covers an enormous area, like half of Europe or half of North America, absolutely huge. And the volumes must have been gigantic. And the amounts of gas coming out is is just unimaginable. And the measured impact on temperature was that temperatures rose by 10 or 15 degrees. The present day, we're talking about like one or two degrees. 10 or 15 degrees, it's worth thinking, how does this kill? In the tropics, let's assume that a normal air-ocean temperature is maybe 25 or 30 degrees. If you add 10 or 15 degrees, you go up to 40 degrees. There are no plants or animals on land or in the ocean that are happy at a temperature of 40 degrees Celsius. That's like a very hot shower. You might give yourself a blast for a minute or two and jump out looking like a red lobster you would not be happy residing in water at that temperature. You'd get boiled and nothing likes it. And so what do they do? They don't instantly die. They move away and they move north and south till they find the correct temperature because that creates crowding. And remember that the bulk of biodiversity today and in the past is round the equator. That's where high biodiversity resides. And if it moves away, it crowds the temperate zones and then those organisms are pushed away off the edges because there's no temperate zone anymore. And so what we get after the end Permian event is a tropical dead zone, and there's a lot of evidence in the fossil record for that. It essentially cleared out all of life from half the Earth, that half that spans around the equator.
2: The last mass extinction, apart from obviously the one that we may be living through now, is the one that everybody has heard of, a meteorite hits off the Mexican coast kills all the dinosaurs and you talk in the book about places where we have found this in the um in the rocks in the in the fossil records but there's also another mass extinction that we didn't know about so to finish this off quickly can you tell us how we lose a mass extinction
3: yes this is one that happened in the triassic 230 million years ago it's called the carnian pluvial episode pluvial means rainfall how do you lose it People had thought they'd found it. I sort of found fossil evidence. Others were finding evidence in the rocks of this massive rainfall. Somehow it's poo-pooed at the time. We didn't push it. We only had evidence in Europe. So people were quite reasonably saying, maybe this is just a local thing. But then with the new work coming out of China and people were looking at rocks of the same age in Canada and Argentina, they found, yeah, wow, there's something going on. And now it's all tying together. There there was massive eruption in Western Canada, the same story as in the late Permian, hyperthermal, so that the the greenhouse gases caused um, not only warming, but the warming generated excess rainfall, a kind of tropical rainfall type of thing, which was fine. Life enjoyed that. But then at the end of the eruptions, the rainfall disappeared. Temperatures remained quite hot, but very dry. And so there were severe repercussions and vast amounts of life died out. And following that, following this Carnian pluvial event, what do we get? We get dinosaurs, the first dinosaurs. They take over the world. We even get the first mammals and we get the first lizards and, and the first um, frogs and and very many of the modern and the first modern type conifers and certain modern insect groups like flies and butterflies. So this is actually... a really important time in the origin of modern ecosystems. And yet it was kind of lost until three or four years ago when people plucked up the courage to say, hold on, actually there is something going on here. And these guys, including me and a number of others who were burbling on about this in the 1980s, they were right, and, and we've now got the evidence.
2: So I've been talking to Michael J. Benton. We've been talking about his book Extinctions, How Life Survives, Adapts, and Evolves which is out in the UK, like all his other books, from Thames and Hudson. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me.
3: It's a great pleasure. Thank you.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more